This is going to be a little bit different. We're doing a co-hosted version of Business Leaders Podcast. My name is Bob Rourke. I'm the host. My co-host is JoLynn Whiting. Thank you. She is a previous guest on the podcast. She is with Boardbound by the Women's Leadership Foundation. And our guest is Cheryl Campbell. She is the former Senior Vice President, XL Energy, retired, and she's also the Independent Director of Hoffman Southwest. And for the folks that don't know what Hoffman Southwest is, they are the parent company of Rotorooter, correct? Correct. They do Rotorooter and ProPipe, do a lot of pipeline work for the utility industry. Excellent. Well, tell us a little bit about what you do what you've done in the past, and then we'll bring it forward to your service on boards and the relationship that you have with BoardBound. I've spent about 35 years in the energy industry, about 20 years with the old Coastal Corporation, Colorado Interstate Gas, and the last 14 years or so was with Xcel Energy, retired from there last June. Spent a lot of time doing engineering, strategic planning, operations, regulatory work, just a wide variety of things was very, very fortunate to have many, many opportunities and do a lot of very interesting work over the course of my career. Got interested in boards relatively early on, sat on a number of nonprofit boards, and more recently decided I wanted to serve on company boards. So it's been a great career and really happy to be here and talk to you today about what I've been up to in the board bound program. Jolene and I are going to work out who's going to ask the next question. <laughs> so do you have some thoughts, Jolene? Well, one thing, Cheryl, that is you were an executive in the energy business. And we have a lot of energy businesses here in Colorado. But for those people that may not be familiar with Excel, could you sort of describe the scope of your responsibility? Sure, I can do that. Excel Energy is a combination gas and electric utility provider, and they serve eight states. We had 2 million gas customers and about 3.4 million electric customers. So pretty good-sized company overall. I ran the gas business for Excel, so I was responsible for those 2 million gas customers and our employees and our asset base and have spent the last 10 years or so building their asset management programs and their risk management programs, working with our board to improve our risk management and our safety, both for our employees and the public around our system. So it, it was a great opportunity. And, you know, I think we made a lot of good progress while I was there and they continue to make a lot of good progress today. For the young men and women that are out there listening and they're going to go, I'd love to have a career path where I progress and succeed and end up running a division and being able to serve on boards. What advice would you offer to that listener that has an interest in heading and trying to replicate your success? First of all, you really got to be good at what you do. You need to be good and competent at, at the work that you do, and you need a broad skill set. You can't just focus on being an engineer or an accountant or you know, a financial analyst. You really need to broaden your capabilities, your skill set, your leadership. I think back over my career, and I think some of the stuff that made a big difference for me was I never shied away from trying something new and different, right? I mean, if it was a lot of times people would say, oh, nobody wants to volunteer and do that. And I'd say, okay, I'll try it, right? I'll do it. Step up and try to do stuff that might be a little bit out of your comfort zone. When I decided that I wanted to get more involved in serving on boards, I started talking to a lot of people 
you start thinking about who do I know, right, that can tell me about this or has done it before. And I started realizing I knew a lot of people that already sat on boards or interacted with boards. And I started asking a lot of questions. One of the big things that came out was your leadership capabilities and the ability to think strategically. So I started looking at getting more involved nationally, for instance, in the gas industry and taking on leadership roles at the national level with the trade associations and with the Department of Transportation, who does a lot of the regulatory work. You need to investigate what skill set you need to do it, and then you need to look at ways that you can build that skill set on the career path that you're on. So that's sort of a broad overview. And Jolyn, your career was not that dissimilar because you progressed and then both of you guys have pursued higher education and more expertise in the formal education system. And the thing that I think maybe we'll dive off into is for the folks that have a career and they go, you know, I'd like to serve on a board and they go, well, short of a mentor somewhere, how in the world do I figure out what I need to do? which, Jolynn, that plays into BoardBound. Right, right. And we were excited, Cheryl, that you were part of the Corporate BoardBound program. So tell us about that year and the year before, because you were involved over a period of time, right? I was, and I initially got involved. I'd heard about the BoardBound program from a colleague and reached out and joined it. Unfortunately, the mentor that I had ended up having a very serious health problem. And so I didn't get to complete that first year, I guess is probably the best way to say it. And JoLynn and her colleague reached out to me and said, hey, come back and we'll pair you up with a different mentor, which was John Kelly. And I got to restart the program and do it again. And it was very helpful as far as that goes. It's not going to teach you some of the things you learn by working in corporate America and interacting with boards and other executive leaders and things like that. But what it does do is help you understand how to frame your value that you can bring to a board, how to build a board resume and a board bio, how to go through the interview process, and then how to get your name in the right places so that you might be considered for a board role. And we did some play interviewing, I guess you might want to call it, right? It was very helpful, right? Because people are making suggestions and critiquing, and you came across this way. Is that really the way that you meant to come across? So all of that was just a very helpful process. The other thing I liked about it was the program brought in relevant topics. So one night we talked about cybersecurity and board governance. And that's a very hot topic right now for boards. You know, how should boards be thinking about cybersecurity and how it impacts their company and the future of their company? That helps you understand that sort of broader strategic thinking that you need to be doing when you're on a board as opposed to, you know, I own this business unit or I am focused on that particular aspect of the company. It helps you look a little more broadly. And I think that's a really important aspect of the program. We're really proud of your cohort because there was a great chemistry. And we had seven people that now are on boards that some of them are public boards, some are private boards, and some are advisory boards, but they're all corporate paid board positions, which is great. 
it was a great group of people. You know, you get a chance to bond together and to share stories and to say, well, this happened to me and I wasn't sure how to respond to that. So you're not only learning from your mentor, you're also learning from the other people that are participating in the program. It was really a great experience. I think about so much of that as trying to find a mentor for lack of a better term, or finding a resource for information. Do you find that you reach out to your classmates? We do sometimes. We're all connected on LinkedIn now, which I think is really a great way to stay in touch with each other because in today's world, right, people just sort of disperse. (laughs) And you might be together for a little while, but then you move to another part of the country or your role in a different part of the city even, it's difficult to stay connected with people. So we do communicate via LinkedIn on a regular basis and we can see what other people are up to. And JoLynn's talked about getting the alumni group back together, which I think would be a terrific thing to do to kind of keep people connected over time. But yeah, it's been a very helpful group. It was a very interesting group. Everybody came at it with different backgrounds. And, you know, I learned something from everybody in the program. But a lot of it's your own personal network, right? So tell the story about how you got on the Hoffman Southwest board. Yep, I can do that. So I actually went to a board meeting for the American Gas Association for my boss, who was Excel's board member and he couldn't make it so I went and I had dinner with one of the other board members and I've known her for a while. She worked for National Grid, one of the other utilities in the country. And we just got to talking that night about women on boards and helping women learn how to take on senior executive roles in companies. And two things came out of that. One was the American Gas Association built a Next Level Women's Leadership Development Program, which is now in its third or fourth year and is helping women understand skills that they need to develop to take that next step in corporations. And the second one was this woman called me a few years later and said, gee, Cheryl, are you still interested in serving on a board? Why, yes, I am. She says, well, I've been talking to these guys and they're looking for someone in the utility industry that would be interested in serving on the board. And so we started talking and it's a private equity company and it worked. So I've been on the board for about a year now and it's really been a fantastic learning experience. I'd like to think I'm adding some value to the board. (laughs) So I had no idea that this would end up coming out of that conversation after that trade association dinner over one last glass of wine basically (laughs) is the way it all came together. A lot of times people do get the positions of their own network, but what we found is if you go through the corporate boardbound program, you have a clear idea of what your value proposition is, and people can help you more if they know what role you can play. So I think that was one thing that was great is you got very crisp on where your value was and how you could add value. Was that hard to think through? It is hard to think through, right? It's easy to say, well, these are the things I think I'm good at, but you have to look at it from the point of view of what can you offer the company as board governance and from a board role. Because the boards don't run the day-to-day company. That's what you have leaders and managers and executives for. The board's there to provide guidance and strategy and key decisions. So how can you help them, right, make those key decisions and add value? And you do need to think about it from a little bit different point of view as opposed to here's the value I bring a company and my day-to-day leadership capabilities and things like that to 
what can I offer a company from a governance role or from a strategic role? Those are just different things. And it did take a while to say, all right, what do I think I can add to a board? When you first got involved with BoardBound, you were still working, right, for Excel? I was. What's your time commitment to go through BoardBound? It wasn't too bad, right? I mean, at first it felt a little daunting with the work and the pre-work and the different things that they gave us. But as you got into it, it didn't feel too bad. We met every two or three months and you had a little bit of homework to do and a book to read and stuff like that. And I traveled enough, I found I had plenty of time on airplanes (laughs) to do that work, right? And then part of it is just introspection, right? How do you think you can add value to a board and stuff like that? Talking to other people, and I did that, I admit it. I talked to some people that I know that I think very highly of. It's like, all right, I think I have value here. What do you think? And got some feedback from them. And you hear about strengths from some of these people that you didn't really think of necessarily as a strength. So that sort of helped me kind of coalesce around, here's the way I should phrase this to say how I can add value to a board. So it did feel a little daunting at first because the job I had, it took a lot of time. That's probably the best way to put it. It was pretty much a 60 to 80 hour a week job. So it did feel a little like a lot at first. But once I got past the first meeting or two, I just found that it just wasn't that bad. It was easy enough for me to stay up with the class and to get a lot out of it. You know, it's like everything else. You get out of it what you put into it. You know, thinking of the very first board meeting that you went into after you got brought on this board, take us to kind of the when you're in at that board meeting. What were you thinking? Well, I think it's fair to say I was nervous. <laughs> I had met most of these people beforehand as either part of the interview process or having lunch with them or, you know, whatever. So I knew almost all of them, but still you're nervous because you don't necessarily understand the dynamic. You don't know how their board governance and their structure works. I was very pleased to be placed on the audit committee at first because that's one of those sort of prized committees on boards, right? You can learn a lot on an audit committee and you get a chance to see sort of the financial side, right, and the goings on of a company. So I went into it with a very much, you know, I'm going to be an open mind and a sponge, right? I need to learn a lot. So I was pretty nervous. You're kind of watching the dynamics, trying to understand the different roles different people are playing. And, you know, it was probably pretty quiet for the first probably half of the board meeting and then tried to make sure that I was contributing and asking questions and things of that nature. You don't want to just be there, right? I mean, you really need to contribute and to participate and engage. So yeah, it was kind of like your first day on a new job because it is a job, right? I mean, a, a board role is a job. And I think you have to remember that it's not a, gee, it's cool and all that kind of stuff. It really is a job. And we get pre-work and financial statements and information, the agenda, you know, stuff like that. And you need to go through that and spend some time before the board meeting. And I had done that. I had actually reached out to the CFO and said, will you take me through this stuff beforehand? And he set up a web conference and we went through a lot of the stuff beforehand so that I, I knew what I was getting into, right? And I wasn't asking kind of rudimentary questions in the board meeting. So, you know, I'm not going to tell you that I immediately went in there and had my feet under me and felt comfortable because it's not true. (laughs) But I'd say by the time we got to the second meeting, I was starting to get a little more comfortable with just the process and how it works and what to expect. 
and knowing people and how they communicate, right, or don't, right, because not everybody's an effective communicator, understand what some of the dynamics are and do a little bit better job engaging and participating in the meetings. Are there any women uh, besides yourself on that board? There are not. It's a small board. I'm the only independent director. The rest of the directors are members of the parent holding company. So my perspective is that independent outside, a strong operations background, and then connections into the utility industry that they're looking and hoping to market their services to. So I am the only woman. The company has a woman HR, chief HR officer. So she's usually in the room for the board meetings as well, but the rest of the participants are men. I think about the value add when you come into the board. And so you've got the first board meeting and what have you got? How many board meetings have you been at now? Four. The fifth one will be later in March. Now that you're a veteran, quote, <laughs> you know, and, and you, you, know, you think about day one, first board meeting, and you go in now, what's your mindset difference between the two? I'm not nervous anymore, and I feel like I understand the numbers and the process better. The company's been through a lot in the last year. They weren't hitting some of their targets and their numbers. So we've had some, I'll call them kind of challenging board meetings as we've talked through what some of those issues have been and reworked the plan a little bit. So it's been intense at times. And I think it's like a lot of other things. When you've been through some more intense, you know, things aren't always rosy, right, conversations then I think it helps you focus on what's important and what the dynamics are. So certainly the financial side is very critical, but you can't hit your financial targets without a lot of other things working correctly in a company. And that's true if you're a public company or a private equity firm. So we've had a lot of interesting conversations about the employees and their incentive programs and the culture and the way the employees are interacting with their frontline leaders. So, you know, I feel a lot more comfortable now. I I know a lot more about the company. I know the people a little bit further down in the company. I think I have a pretty good idea what their weaknesses and their strengths are. And you're trying to help them build on their strengths, right? And how to make sure the weaknesses aren't taking them down, right? So, you know, it's very different today than it was a year ago. And I'm a lot more comfortable with the process. So you're working for this company and strengths and weaknesses and progress and maybe not progress in some of the areas. Do you have bandwidth to be on another board? I absolutely think so. Yeah. I'm retired. I'm doing a little consulting and I'm doing board work. And that's what I wanted to do when I was retired. So, you know, my bandwidth is going to be how many do I want where my husband and I can still travel and do the things we want to do. So I think I could easily do another board and maybe a third and still work within the time frame, the time commitment that I want. You know, boards probably take 10 to 20 hours, you know, when you're doing a prep work for a meeting. So if you're serious, right, and you're reading all the materials and staying engaged, and if there's things going on, you might have meetings in between the quarterly meetings as well. And that has happened with my board on Hoffman Southwest. We've had a couple of meetings outside of board meetings and or information that you get or, gee, we need the board to approve this deal or that deal. And you need a little information before you can approve those deals, right? You can't just go, yep, I approve, right? So... I think I can handle one or two more and still be able to do the things that I want to do. 
In Colorado, overall, we have, of the public company boards, we have 14% women. Our energy companies are less than 10%. But I think Excel did have a more diverse board. And you mentioned earlier that you interacted with the Excel board. Could you sort of reflect on how that went and did it make a difference that it was a more diverse board? I think it did. And I think the Excel board is a great example of a good board having a very positive impact on a company. And, you know, I started interacting with them in 2010 after the San Bruno incident in California that happened to PG&E. And a month later, I was standing before the Excel board talking to them about Excel's gas assets and what we were doing about managing that risk. And I've learned a lot from the Excel board. And it does have, well, it's varied, but three or four women on the board. They're all wonderful people, the men and the women. And as I said, I've learned a lot from them. They've taught me a lot about governance and about risk management. Spoke to them regularly about what we're doing, managing our risk. They ask good questions about culture and how you're changing your culture and improving the culture, right, and keeping the public safe. They've been a great sounding board. They know that I am interested in board service and have been extremely supportive. So they've been a great resource as well. But I think that they challenged the Excel leaders before San Bruno even about safety, right, where we'd had an unfortunate incident They challenged us in the right way. They said, hey, you're top quartile in these metrics. Why aren't you top quartile in safety? And it made us all sort of pause and stop and say, well, that's a really good question. Maybe we need to put some focus on that. I'd say after that, we improved our safety metrics remarkably. We were in the fourth quartile for employee safety, and now we're right on the edge of first quartile when I left and the public safety metrics that we track were the same way. We'd made significant improvement on the order of 30 to 50% improvement on our public safety metrics. Our environmental programs were improving dramatically. And I'd say a good chunk of that came from the board asking the right questions in the right way of the executive leadership team. I'm not going to say it didn't take a lot of hard work by a lot of people, right, within the executive leadership team. But, you know, a good board can provide good direction and focus for uh, a leadership team. I was thinking as you were chatting and you go, okay, we're going to take and go from here to a 50% improvement. And then I think you were also chatting about culture change. And as you go through as a board and you go, okay, I think this is a direction then the management team and executives execute the vision at some point. As a board, what did you do to look at either compliance or progress? How did that come to you to see if it was actually happening? Some of the metrics, it's very difficult. Employee safety is easy, right? It's OSHA. Everybody goes to OSHA and what they call DART. And those are well-known metrics, and they're relatively straightforward to track. What we discovered over time with a lot of the other metrics were there weren't any sort of common industry metrics for improving public safety or some of the ESG stuff, right, the environmental goals. 
So we ended up building a lot of this stuff as we went. And, you know, I'd go in and I'd talk to the board and say, here's how we're looking at this aspect of it. And they'd challenge us, well, are you sure that's the right metric? Or have you thought about it from this point of view? And we'd go back and rework it. And so we've had some metrics sort of evolving, I would say, and changing over time. And you have to be flexible, right? You have to hear what they're saying and the questions they're asking, right? And then try to figure out how to build a metric that's not going to take a lot of time for your employees to track and do something with, but it's going to give us a meaningful message that we're actually making progress on stuff. And sometimes those are very, very difficult to figure out what those are. But we had come up with some within Excel that we thought were relevant for the work we were doing and the the issues we were attacking. And I'm confident that they will continue to evolve over time. As you sort of knock them down, right, and get past those, we all know other things come up in cultures, right? It's like, yeah, there's a new one, right? I mean, I solved that cultural problem or that attitude or that whatever, and now I have to move to sort of the next problem, right? So I thought we laid a decent groundwork and we came up with some stuff that helped us say, yes, we've moved forward, we've improved this aspect of it, but then something else will turn up and you'll have to move to a different one, right, to show that the progress on the next one. You have to be flexible is what I've discovered. (laughs) OSHA and DART are pretty consistent, but a lot of this other stuff, until companies kind of get focused on the same type of indicator like OSHA and DART, you know, those are lagging indicators. And we all wish we could generate leading indicators that show the right things. I don't think anybody's found any awesome leading indicators for employee safety either. That's why we all still use OSHA and DART. There aren't very many good, really leading indicators for that kind of stuff. Uh, You mentioned safety, but also environmental. That was an area where you had some improvements, right? We did. You know, Excel's done a great job with their environmental work on the electric side, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And on the gas side, there wasn't a lot of focus on it when I first started, but we knew we had to do something because Excel is an environmental leader and you can't have part of your business dabbling in that and being a leader and the other part not. So we developed some of our own metrics and some of our own measurements internally. So for instance, one of the things that we had made significant progress on was reducing methane emissions to atmosphere when we do pipeline construction work, or we have people who hit our pipelines, how we deal with that and how quickly we can get those off, reducing those methane emissions to the atmosphere. And we measured that and could show that we had made significant progress over time. I think about the perception of boards. You've got some of the employees that have no clue, some of the employees that are beginning to get a clue, and then there's the senior leadership that's fairly clued in. And for you guys, when you're on the board and you're looking top-down guides through the company, what do you think the key is to get the message from the board to the employee to affect behavior? What do you think that mechanism is? A lot of it's those frontline leaders. Those are the people that the majority of your employees interact with on a day-to-day basis, or their supervisor or their manager. So touching those people and getting those people on board with your vision and engaged is really critical. And it might be anything from they don't necessarily have the leadership skills or the management skills that they need to do it effectively. So you need to help them, support them and help them learn and grow in those capabilities. Or sometimes it's just 
they don't belong in that role. They might be really good people and really good employees, but not necessarily in that kind of a role. So can we put them someplace else in the organization, right? So that they can contribute, right? But they're not necessarily contributing in that way with those frontline people. So it's some of it is one conversation at a time. Some of it is, I think we've all heard the sort of adage about If you want people to remember, you have to say the same thing 10 times a day for like 10 months before it really sinks in. And some of it is just a lot of repetition. Hey, this is our vision. This is our path. This is where we're going. Let's just be very, very consistent in what that message is. As you were talking about vision, I think I read somewhere that in Hoffman Southwest, you did an acquisition while you've been on the board. So I I think about the vision of the existing company and then behaviorally how you guys consider an acquisition and then vision transmission to the acquisition. Let's dig into that a little bit. (laughs) Well, I'd say we're in the early stages of that last piece, but you know, like most private equity firms, right, their goal all along was to buy more companies. So they started with Hoffman Southwest as the core, and their intention has been to acquire additional companies to bring under that umbrella and expand those services. And I'd say over the last year, we've looked at a number of targets or acquisition targets or things that looked like they were getting close. And then for whatever reason, it wouldn't work. It's been very interesting, right, at the board meetings to listen to the people that were evaluating those acquisitions talk about them. You know, here's the pros and cons, and here's where it would add value to our company. Here's where we think there would be some challenges with that. And then this last one, the last board meeting I was at in December, it looked like we were getting very close and we were going to be able to bring the deal together. And sure enough, it worked out. And this will be our first board meeting with the bigger company. And I think that how that integration happens going forward is going to be a big topic for this next board meeting. And, you know, how are you going to get everybody focused and aligned and all working together, pulling the same direction? So I've been through a couple of mergers and acquisitions in my career. It's really challenging, right, at the leadership level, frontline, mid-level and executive leadership to get everybody on the same page. So I'm hopeful that my own personal experiences, right, with acquisitions is going to help provide some guidance and some intelligence, right, for the leadership team at Hoffman. And, you know, if it's an acquisition-based organization, and so you kind of go, presumably, there'll be additional acquisitions coming down. Presumably. And, And so as you go through your lessons learned, you know, and you're learning as you go and everybody's bringing their past experience. Do you think that within the board environment that they'll start to get systematized on acquisition behavior? I think it's a distinct possibility. I think that a lot of private equity companies are very focused on acquisitions, right? So they clearly have a model and the key things that they look at that they feel are important to the acquisition from a financial aspect and a market aspect, how well they think it'll fit. I think the stuff that's a little harder are the soft things, right, with the employees and the culture, merging cultures and things like that. And I think we've all seen big acquisitions and mergers fail, right? And we could probably name a few of them where you know, Chrysler comes to mind, right, where that just, they never got the cultures together, right? So it, it's clear to me that they've got a very good systematic way of evaluating it. And I think it'll be interesting, right, to see what about that softer stuff and how does that fit, right, with the overall model 
but I have to say they've been doing it for a long time, right? So it's not like this is a new thing for them. It's new for me, but it's not new for them. You know, one of the things I was looking at is you have a chemical engineering degree, and then you have a business degree, but we have not made a lot of progress in getting women into STEM, the scientific, technical, engineering, and mathematical. So first of all, what inspired you to pursue that? And how do you think we can be sure that there are more women participating in some of these non-traditional areas? That's a great question. And I'm just going to say that I got interested in it because I was good in math and science in high school. And this was pre-internet and webs and all this kind of stuff where you could Google it up and do a lot of searches. And I had a high school counselor say, you should look at engineering, right? And so I applied to the engineering college and got accepted. And I ended up in chemical because the dean basically said, those of you that are undetermined better come down here and pick one or you're going to do them all. And there's a threat, right? And, you know, I'm just a dumb 18-year-old first-gen college kid, didn't know any better. He scared me, right? And I walked down there and I went, well, all right, I liked chemistry in high school, so I signed up for chemical engineering. I mean, it was, it was really that straightforward. And I got in after the first semester, I went, hey, this is kind of interesting. I like it. So it worked out for me, but I can't say there was any grand plan or anything like that. So, you know, how do we get more women and diverse groups into them? It's a tough nut to crack. I sat on the Bold Advisory Committee up at CU uh, Boulder for a while, and that's Building Opportunity Through Leadership Development. And they work with a lot of first-gen and underrepresented groups in the engineering school and the STEM schools. And one of the things that stuck in my mind from that was people have a hard time envisioning themselves in that role. So it's easy to say, well, we need to show them more role models, but I think you also have to be willing to show them the things they can do and the things they can be. So just because you have an engineering degree doesn't mean that you have on steel-toe boots and walk around a processing plant, as an example, or you don't necessarily wander around a highway project where they're building bridges and stuff. You know, engineers can do a lot of different things. And there are roles for construction engineers. There are roles for planners. There are roles in leadership for technical backgrounds. I think we need to do a better job as a society and as schools of showing people there's a big breadth of things you can do, biomedical field, space sciences, the impact that this can have on society And I think if we can do a better job of doing that, I think we'll be able to retain more people in the STEM fields. They can see a path for themselves. I think it'll make a difference. It's interesting, you know, I think about the access to information and role models. For me, I was a pre-med kid, then ended up going to the Army. You know, I have a biology, math, chemistry background. And you go, well, that doesn't translate to the Army very well. No, it doesn't. It really didn't. (laughs) It really (laughs) did. You know, but I think about the problem solving, being organized, you know, being able to take and go through and conceptualize a problem, figure out a methodology of getting from A to B, if-then type work. And for you, part of the reason we're doing the podcast and part of the reason we're doing these episodes is to talk about women that are functioning in board roles. And... What were the key differentials that brought you from wherever you were up through an organization to get you qualified, to get to the point where you can serve and add value to a board? And it doesn't make you different than men. 
It's just what's the process so folks can visualize my premise behind doing this, and Joe Lynn and I have talked about it, and you're the first one to come on board, so thank you for being the first one through. (laughs) No visible marks so far. (laughs) And with that being said, how do you take and help these kids get visualization of what they can do? If that's the challenge, what do you think the solution might be? I think that is the hard part, right, is how do we show them what could be? I spend time mentoring and working with people early in their careers. I am part of the Colorado Oil and Gas Association engine program. I speak regularly with that group. I've done work with the University of Colorado. I've done work with the American Gas Association, Southern Gas Association, and talk a lot about, you know, not only leadership, but look at all of these great things that are going on that you can do. Frankly, I think we need to get a little lower in the educational system. I think I've seen studies, and JoLynn could probably correct me, but in elementary school, young boys and girls are pretty equal in their math and science. And somewhere in the middle school, our young women decide that they can't do it. And yet they were showing they could do it before, and they were just as smart, just as quick, just as able to learn the concepts. And then there's something about those middle school years that they've I don't know if it's because they figure maybe the boys won't like me because if I'm smart or what the issue is. But somewhere in those middle school years is where we tend to lose a lot of our young women. They start believing they can't do math. They start believing that they can't do science. They're not smart enough. And we've got to figure out how to overcome that. Well, and you mentioned in your own story that when that counselor said to you that you would be good at this, it made a difference. So I think that reinforcement that you are good at this, if we can get that message to a lot of girls and women as they're coming up. And you're right. And I'll add to that, you know, a big problem that women have is confidence, self-confidence. And they have a hard time stepping into things, right? And different people have called it different things, stepping in, leaning in, and call it whatever you want. The reality is, and what a lot of women don't realize is, men have the same self-confidence issues, but they do a much better job of hiding it, I guess. And they do just step into things, much more so than women do. And for some women, you figure that out sort of earlier, and some women get all the way through their careers and never figure it out that you really can do it. You just need to try and put in the time. Well, it's sort of related to that, as a lot of women feel like they have to be 100% prepared before they try. And a lot of guys feel like, well, I've sort of got this. If I got 60%, that's good. So I think part of it is that realizing that you don't have to be perfectly prepared because a lot of your growth is going to come from doing it. And when I talk to women in some of these programs we've been talking about, I talk about that is you think that you have to have every qualification on that job description. You don't. The men that are applying do not. I guarantee you they do not. But you've got to figure out, right, have the courage to go ahead and throw your your name into the ring and sell yourself. And I think that's a skill set that women have got to continue to develop. For you, when did your confidence come on board for you? (laughs) If you think that I'm 100% confident all the time, you're wrong. (laughs) No, but but there's there's a tipping point where you come and go, I can point to an event or time frame or circumstance this is, I'm not good at everything, but I'm really good at that. And if I make up my mind to be good at that, I can therefore be good at other things. Did you have one of those? 
Yes, I was very, very fortunate relatively early in my career to work for some really good leaders and to interact with some really good leaders. And a couple of people kind of took me under their wings without me even realizing it, quite frankly. (laughs) You know, when you have a vice president just sort of stop into your office regularly and ask how things are going, it took me a few years before I realized what he was doing, right? You know, he saw something in me that he thought, you know, he could nurture and grow. And I was very appreciative that he was willing to spend the time to do that. But yeah, somewhere in there, it dawned on me that, hey, there's some stuff I'm really very good at. Now, I always felt like I had to work really hard and put in a lot of time. And I did. I spent a lot of time nights and weekends to feel like I had the confidence to step into some of those early roles. And then, you know, as you learn and grow in your career, you can sort of move on from some of that stuff and worry about the next thing. I'd say somewhere in my early 30s, it dawned on me that I think you can be a good leader. I think you can be a good technical leader because technical leaders get a bad rap, right? Most people that are strong on the technical side aren't necessarily strong on the leadership side. And it's a different skill set. So you have to work at it, right? It's not something that I can just say, I got it. I've worked at it over the years and realized that I have some of those really strong engineering tendencies, right? But I've learned to recognize what those triggers are that me down those path and push myself back into a better leadership role. And people need to realize that it takes work. You can't just go, well, people just make it look so easy. And I've heard people say that, Charlie, make it look easy. No, there's a lot of work that goes into it. It's like the public speakers that are really good and they go, they're just a natural public speaker. They have no idea. They have no idea the amount of work that people are putting in behind the scenes to make it look like that. That's right. I have a son and a daughter, and so the son's hard-headed and and does what he does. My daughter, she got involved with martial arts early on. It's an extraordinary confidence builder. She's going, like you, through the leadership program here in Denver as well, which is another building block. You know, and I think about those incidences of building blocks and the focus. So if you were to offer advice to some of these young men and women that are going like, yes, I'd love to have more technical skills or I'd love to have more leadership skills, Are there resources or books that you read that you think would be helpful for them to try to identify, hone, or improve where they are? Everybody's got different things they're interested in, right? But some of my favorite books, this one will sound funny, but Nice Girls Don't Get the Corner Office is really a great book for women because it sort of attacks some of the self-talk that we all tend to have going on in our heads all the time and compares it to the way other people approach the same situations and helps you understand that you know you need to defeat some of that self-talk, right, and get to a different place. Nudge by Richard Thaler is a good book, and it's really about change and how do you get people to change from where they are because leadership, right, is about setting a vision and then leading people down that vision. And that means you have to convince people to change and to do something different. So I really enjoy his approach to trying to change that dynamic and get people to think a little bit differently and follow your vision. And then uh, Adam Grant is a speaker and an author that I've enjoyed very much. And he's written a couple, but I thought Give and Take was really good. And his whole premise is there are givers and takers in the world. And the people that do really well over time are the givers. And he talks about the differences between the givers and the takers. So those are three books. And I'm a voracious reader, but those are three of the books that I remember and have had a big impact on me over time. Joe Lynn, 
what thoughts do you have that we haven't <laughs> quizzed her about? Well, Cheryl, what I'm impressed with is just how great it is to know you. It's you. obvious that your leadership, your senior leadership and your executive role, why? Why you were successful. And I'm so glad that you've embraced this goal of getting on boards because I know you'll add a lot of value there. So we just need more and more Cheryl's. <laughs> well, thank you, Jolyn. <laughs> I'm having a good time. This has really been very interesting so far, and I'm really enjoying the board work and the consulting work. And I've enjoyed all of my career. It's really been a, a great career overall. I think about the stages of life. You know, the stages kind of get your technical skills, get employed, then excel in what you're doing and progress as far as you can. And then the phase into retirement, retirement means different things to many people. I'm not a huge fan personally. I don't like the word. And so I think about the board work, the mental stimulation and the consulting work. You know, I think it makes people live longer. I would agree with that. We all need a purpose. <laughs> yeah, the idea of sitting down is just not an idea of what I'd want to do. Well, it's yeah. a shame to lose that wisdom well, and expertise. The yeah, the podcast, part of the reason of doing this is to explore and record the wisdom that you've paid so much tuition for. Yes. Personally, <laughs> you know, all of those things, and you kind of go, I think that as we get further in our careers, you kind of go, God, I wish I could transmit and shortcut some of this for some of the folks. And so for you and the board, that's a great way. The work with Board Bound is a great way to do it. And I guess there's one other question, mm -hmm. if we have time, because uh -oh. you were on community boards, nonprofit boards. Uh -oh. You were on industry association boards. And so we have a community board bound track as well as the corporate board bound track. But did you think that helps? Was that part of your leadership development? What are your reflections upon those roles? You know, I think that's a great question because I've heard a lot of people say it's really different and you can't really transfer one from the other. I got involved with nonprofit boards early in my career and started with Junior Achievement of Southern Colorado. I tend to think that they're great for helping you understand governance and strategic planning. And is it different? Of course it is because a nonprofit has a different mission and objective than a corporation. But the governance issues and some of the strategic planning issues are very similar. So, you know, I had a chance to be involved early on in changing the path for Junior Achievement in Southern Colorado. And you kind of think, well, all right. I mean, you don't get that opportunity very often. And it helped me think a little better in my day job about planning and thinking longer term and more broadly about where the company was going, how my department fit into that vision, those types of things. I think if people embrace it that way instead of this is how a nonprofit works versus this is how a corporation works, I think it can make a difference and they are transferable skills. And that's something you did early in your career. I did. I would encourage people to do it. It's a great way to give back. It's also a great way to network and to learn about some of the things that we've been talking about. Well, guys, in this case, <laughs> ladies, Cheryl, JoLynn, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come on the episode here and look forward to doing more of these. Great. Thanks yeah. for having me. Any parting thoughts or recommendations before we wind this up? For women and men, I'd say lean in, right? And take a chance on things. Just step into things and try things outside of your comfort zone and you'll be surprised what happens. On that note, we'll call it good. All right, thank you. Thank you.